Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. For today's episode, we speak with Charles Inoue. Charles is a really remarkable person. He's the son of Japanese parents who were held in the Heart Mountain, Wyoming camp during World War II, and he grew up in the small town of Sigurd, Utah. He spent much of his youth working on his family's farm in Sigurd, but eventually served a mission in Japan, and then went on to earn degrees from some of the world's most prestigious universities, including a BA from Stanford and a PhD from Harvard. He's now a professor of Japanese literature and and visual culture at Tufts University. In our discussion, we talk with Charles about his most recent book, Zion Earth, Zen Sky, which is a really interesting and unique work among Latter-day Saint literature. For one thing, its prose is interspersed with haiku, which for us brought a totally new and welcome feel to the book. We've really never read anything quite like it, and Charles's deep understanding of and appreciation for Zen Buddhism brings insight to life as a Latter-day Saint that we'd never really considered. Charles was kind enough to make time for us in studio on a recent trip from Boston to Utah, and we were so glad that we got a chance to talk with him. We hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. All right, Charles Inouye, thank you so much for, for joining us here on the podcast this morning. You're welcome. Um, we are we are extremely excited, I will say, about this conversation. We've yeah. uh, uh, b- and I think we're going to cover a broad variety of topics, but foremost among them are uh, on our minds, at least, is uh, the new book that you've published, uh, Zion Earth Zen Sky, which was published uh, by the Maxwell Institute at at BYU. Um, one, I wanted to get started, and I I I know that we're going to have a lot of time to dive into the meat of the book, but it, w- one thing that really I guess struck me about it was it was written in such a way it it almost like it seemed like it floated a few feet above the ground to put it to put it one way um it seems like in our latter-day saint sort of genre of writing we're almost so grounded in concrete all the time this was a very very different experience and i really i really loved it um i think one of the things that did that for me actually i want to just ask you sort of a um and not a not a theological question in any way but and I know this wasn't an accident since you're a professor of literature. Uh, the entire thing was written as a, essentially as a memoir, but in the present tense, which really right. was different, a really different experience. And it drew me in from the, because, because of that from the first sentence and paragraph. Could you talk about why you made that choice? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I have to say that this was the, the easiest book I've ever written. Mm. And <clears throat> it came out of a... A frustration because I had just spent a long time uh, rewriting for the nth, nth time uh, a novel about my grandfather. And every time I do that, I never get it right, and I know I'm not getting it right. And it, and it's partly because of the, the distance between me and the material. It's also the length of the work, you know. Every time you start over, you have to do the whole thing over and... Um, but it's also because I think I have discovered in me um, a kind of a reticence about uh, fiction in general. So modern society, modern consciousness is, is essentially fictional, fictive, in the sense that it, it takes ideas that are not true and it, and it makes them as true as possible. 
That's what a novel does. A novel is about something that's imagined. And yet, if you take beginning writing classes, you spend all this time learning how to make things seem real. They call it verisimilitude, right? Mm. Your characters have to be rounded and so on. The plot has to make sense. Um, But that raises a great question. Why, Why do we spend so much time making something that is not real seem real? And I think that that's essentially what uh, what modern consciousness is all about. And I'm <clears throat> I have just written this long, you know, twenty years of work writing this book about what modern consciousness is. And then I did this rewrite of my grandfather's story, and and, it, and both of those things just kind of exhausted me. And I wanted to do something that was easy to write, you know, close to home in my own voice. And this is what happened. Wow. And that's that's why it's yeah. easy and in first person and yeah. meandering and hoovering above the ground. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, we loved it. No, I, meant really that. I, I definitely it. meant that as a compliment. I even threw yeah. some, you know, haiku in there. Yes, yes. we yeah. wanted to talk about that too. Yeah, would you talk about the haiku? I I think um, that was that was for me. That was the thing that really drew me in. It, it, it I've actually I'm not sure I've ever really appreciated haiku the way it did at the end of this book. It felt like punctuation. You know, you 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 talk about. A, a big moment in your life and the haiku just kind of felt like after this beautiful story here's like how it felt in just like a snap instant it was right. it was so interesting i just I, I like craved it i just was always like looking ahead for like <laughs> when is the next like snapshot of what this all means it was yeah. so so could you just talk about haiku and and um well if you ever seen a, a bus of japanese tourists you know the door opens they all get out and they all run over to the statue of of harvard and they take a picture everybody takes a photo well, back in the day when they didn't have cameras, they didn't take photos, but they wrote haiku. So your your really? words are exactly wow. right. They're, they're kind of snapshots of the moment. Yeah. Um, and I try to teach my students how to write haiku because it's a way for them to see if they can have a lyrical response to what I call the power of things, if they have, if they have their uh, antennas you know, out and if they can feel something and then have a emotional response that leads to the moment. So a a haiku is a good haiku and a lot of mine are not very good, but (laughs) uh, if you can see the moment of its creation, Mm. like Basho's famous poem, um, uh, an ancient pond, a frog jumps, the sound of water. You know, we don't know a lot of things about that poem. We don't know how old the pond or how big it is. We don't know how many. It could be one or 10,000 frogs. We don't know know the sound, if it's a small sound or a big sound. But because of the simplicity of the form, it can be all of those things. So so haiku tries to be as simple as possible. Yeah. And to be not word candy, but just a documentation of a poetic moment, which is not the writing of the haiku, but the experience of the person. Yeah. So I threw those in to sort of, you know, mix, yeah. mix it up. I, I really love that. I, I really <laughs> enjoyed that, the whole book. Um, would you talk about the title a little bit, um, Zion Earth, Zen Sky? There was a line at the beginning that I especially loved where you say, you say, Zion Earth, Zen Sky, I, I walk the horizon where they meet, not knowing which is up and which is down. <laughs> I just really like that. And it, it, it stayed with me the whole rest of the book and, and I feel like it was a really good framing for your life, which you're about to you're about to introduce throughout the book. And and so so would you give us would you just talk a little bit about that line and what you mean? Well, you know, I 
I'm kind of a messed up person, really, because um, well, different reasons. But one one source of my being confused is the way I grew up in two worlds at the same time. You know, we we <laughs> we're, we're Japanese, the Inoues, and but we grew up in Sigurd, Utah, and all of our neighbors were either white or Navajo or Paiute, and and so um, we. We learned how to balance between those two worlds, and and uh, <clears throat> one of the worries that my parents had was that we would lose our culture because we were living in isolated, uh, deepest darkest Utah. <laughs> 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 but it turned out that uh, because we we got involved with the the church, the Latter Day Saint. Uh, community there, <clears throat> it actually it actually f- actually made us closer to our heritage. Hmm. It sent us to Japan on missions. It, it made us learn Japanese, mm-hmm. and on and on. In fact, that's what I'm going to talk about uh, today in Salt Lake. Oh, really? Yeah, the oh. spirit of Elijah. Mm. Ooh, yeah. So yeah, so up and down, and uh, you know, it's. As I tell my students, you know, I, I'm a confusing kind of teacher. I, I say the same thing, but I say the same thing in so many different ways that it's confusing for mm-hmm. people. But if they can come away at the end with some sort of clarity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So permanent confusion is bad. <laughs> Temporary confusion is good. <laughs> that that, that's so interesting because I, I did um, kind of recognize that that in the book, you would introduce a metaphor and then, and it became a theme and, and it did feel like every time it came up, it did become more clear. And, and at the end, it was just, it had really planted. And I think, so I appreciated that, that pattern because I, I think oftentimes I read and read and read and you're just sort of inundated at the end. It's hard to reflect back and, and think of what really is staying with you. But the, the couple of themes that you really expanded on by the end of the book, it is just part of you because it, they're so recurring and they came up over and over yeah. and each time expanded a little bit. So I, I actually, that's, yeah. that's so interesting that, that, that is very intentional. Cause I really, we, we've talked a lot about that, but yeah. every time it came up, there was a little more. And, and one of those, one of those primary themes that I, I had the exact same experience where I didn't quite know where you were going with it, but by the end of the book, it was it was very clear. But I'd love for you to dive into it because I think it is really meaningful. It's the um, the metaphor of a of a Zen garden and, and raking. Could you could you talk a little bit about uh, about that? So yeah, so the the two most um, successful, if that's the right word, uh, sects of of Mahayana Buddhism that that uh, flourish in Japan are uh, Pure Land Buddhism and Zen. Um, Pure Land Buddhism is actually the 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 kind of Buddhism that my family uh, believed in and belonged to. Zen is a little different because, um, well, it 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 was the it was a type of Buddhism that was um, supported patronized by the samurai class, the warrior class, um, and. The thing about Zen is that it's the most Japanese, in quotes, mm-hmm. uh, form of Buddhism. I think because Buddhism comes not comes from India through China and Korea to Japan, so it's a foreign religion to Japan. 
but it becomes naturalized. And Zen does the most thorough job of naturalizing Buddhism by pushing these abstract ideas down into the concrete world. So Zen practitioners think that you can uh, you can become enlightened by flower through through flower arrangement. Mm. Kado or judo, you know, martial arts, the pliant way, or by um, incense ceremony. These are all, they're all followed by some kind of do, michi, which read michi or way. So by being concrete, you learn the principles. And I think that's like what we practice as Latin right. Saints, mm-hmm. right? You know, totally. You, um, <clears throat> You, uh, you know, you, you bake cookies for somebody. You, uh, when somebody moves, you go help them move. You know, we're not, as a tradition, I don't think we're very philosophically sophisticated, but when it comes to um, doing stuff, <laughs> yeah. we're pretty good at doing out, stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're better at doing stuff than yeah. thinking stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe for that reason. So that's raking. Raking is applied faith right yeah 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 so, so i actually built a garden at my oh really yeah the photos in the book are photos of my that's garden. your garden yes. oh wow okay know that. yeah wow. oh that's incredible wow. how often do you how often do you rake it oh <laughs> <laughs> i'm supposed to rake it uh like i should say every day but yeah. it's more like once uh every two weeks yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> spiritual raking yeah. yeah so i wanted to ask a little bit about that because when, when you mentioned the flower arrangements in the book that and and i and the list of other things that are sort of repetitive and and it made me just reflect on the things that i've notice about our tradition that feel that are repetitive and so that they, they feel kind of mundane. Yeah. And so I wondered if you could just talk a little bit more about that and, and what, what is the difference? How can something that feels mundane be sacred because we're doing it over and over? Like it, it just, I love the idea yeah. that that could be special, but the very thing that could make it special makes it hard for me. That's such a, that's such an important uh, point. You know, there's a, uh, the, the second line in the Analects of Confucius uh, reads, is it not joy when an old friend comes from afar? Hmm. And what it means is interpreted differently by different people. But what I think it probably means is that the old friends are the things you learned when you're a kid. So every time they come by, it's, it's, a, it's a, a thrill because they haven't changed. And because they haven't changed, you know that you have changed. Mm-hmm. In other words, if there's not something in your life that's repetitive and the same, there's no way to even grasp the dynamism that's actually happening in your own consciousness, you know. Because we're changing so much that without the same thing again and again and again, we would have no idea or appreciation of just how, how much we've either improved wow. or gone, the, so true. gone yeah. the other way. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I, um, I, I, there's another, there are another couple of metaphors that I think we'll come back to, but like I mentioned at the beginning, the book largely took the form of, of memoir and walks through, you know, a significant portion of your, of your life and journey. One, one part that stood out to me was when you were in college at, at Stanford, I, I, maybe it stood out to me because I, I feel this culturally, um, among my own friends and, and family and myself, but you, you talk about how you get into a point 
to get to a point mentally where you feel like you need to leave the church. And the quote I believe that you say is because you believe there is a way to be more honest and less chauvinistic. Right. Could you explain, first of all, (laughs) what what you mean by that? I, I, because I think a lot of people, I, honestly, a lot of listeners, a lot of members of the church now may relate. Yeah. Well, um, and how you ended up reconciling those feelings. So to back up just a little bit, the reason I, I ended up at Stanford was because I realized having come off my mission that I pretty much missed the point of my mission. <laughs> right. That, you know, I thought, well, it was all about being obedient and keeping all the rules and working hard. And, mm-hmm. and then I came home and I discovered, no, that's not. That's not what you're supposed to be. I mean, those, that's important. But what really is important is how well you understand the people you're with, right? The world, as, as it were. And so I, I left BYU. I went to Stanford. And I started this years-long journey of trying to understand what the world was, how it worked. And, and um, in the early stages, as I was becoming more world-wise, I was becoming at the same time, more worldly. Mm. And it was confusing because I was learning different ways of thinking about things. And and at the point, at that time, I thought, well, this is confusing. There has to be a way of thinking about things that, that is honest and true and so on. That's the chauvinistic part of it. Um, but in fact, I've learned that that's probably not true. There are many ways of, of thinking about everything. Um, but that at that time, I thought that I could only be me by being consistently me and being limiting myself to one clearly stated fill in the blank, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so I decided to, um, the honest thing to do would be not to go to church anymore. And so I, <laughs> I didn't have anything against the church, really. You know, I went to church, I that last time it's the Stanford Ward and I took the sacrament for the last time and I sang the songs for the last time, you know, and then I, then it was time to get out of there. And, and as I moved over toward the end of the bench there on the end in the aisle was this guy, Dale Nielsen, who was my elders quorum president. He was a PhD in physics. He was also my home teacher. And he was a brilliant guy, and he a sensitive man and an honest man, you know, speaking of honesty. And he, he knew immediately something was up, and he asked me, well, how are you doing? And I says, I'm fine. And then he says, well, you know, if there's anything that I can ever do for you, just let me know. You know, and he actually meant that. You know? Yeah. He actually meant that. <laughs> yep. I make my way down the aisle, I push through the crowds, I get to the back of the room, I take a right turn, I'm about ready to exit, and then, but there's a bench along the back, and sitting on this bench is a, a woman named Patricia Webb, and she jumps up and stands right in front of me, blocks my way, and, and tells me, she asks me, have you forgotten me? How come you don't come and see me anymore? She's my home TG. <laughs> Right, <laughs> uh, and I'm trying to get out of this room, and I'm saying to myself, you know, you can't very well tell her the truth of why you're leaving, but you've got to get out of there. And so I just, I just walked around her. One of the worst things I think I've ever done in my life, and I went out to the exit, got outside. When the door was closed, I was filled with just utter relief. You know, I felt. <laughs> 
all the weight of being a Latter-day Saint, all these years of trying so hard to be this and that were now beyond past me. And I felt, I just felt wonderful. And as I was making my way through this quiet garden to the drive, the, to the parking lot, I hear this voice, you know, the still, still small voice, as it were. And it's saying, Charles, what just happened? You know, you made this big decision, life-changing decision to get out of there. And you were met by someone who loved you and someone who needed your love, right? Does that not mean anything to you? Does not, isn't, that, isn't that a miracle? And I thought about it and I thought about it. And I thought, okay. So by the time I got to my pickup truck, I had made the other decision that I would go back and I've been going back ever since. Yeah. I, you, it was interesting. Well, first of all, the way, yeah, the way that you phrased it in the book and that you just phrased it now is, was really profound. I thought that you had one person to care for you and one person to be cared for by you. Right. And which I think basically summed up church, you know, in one, in one sentence, in one, in one thought there's so many, there are so many layers of complexity that we seem to put on our religious um, behaviors. But really at the end of the day, that's, that's the point, right? right? One person to care for you and one person to be cared mm-hmm. for by you. And that's the problem of leaving is because it, it breaks that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, Can I add one thing? Yeah, I This was sort of the beginning of um, another theme that you introduced, which is just this idea that, you know, what if our goal isn't to walk to God? What if it's to walk with God? And it, it just seemed like there was this real shift in your life and where the goal stopped being purity, you know, or, I mean, I guess maybe that's what you, I would love for you to talk about, like purity versus pure in heart. Like what if, what if the goal isn't just doing all the perfect things and checking every box and what if, and sorting black and white, you know, what if the goal is, is walking with God? And, and I just love that like shift in perspective, like things get so simple when, when that's the goal. Right. So that, that's the, the, the idea that I worked out in this other book, uh, the end of the the world plan B, because it's a, it's basically a Buddhist idea that helped me understand the, the Christian idea, which is first of all, leaving, leaving suffering, they call it samsara, the burning house. And then you, you, you know, you, we, we call it choose the right and getting on mm-hmm. that path of learning what is right and wrong and choosing what is good and, and knowing that justice is a good thing. But the thing is, <laughs> when you think about it, justice doesn't end, lead us to a good place, mm-hmm. right? You know, because, you know, it, you know, you want to say that good, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And, but, Bad things happening to bad people is not, that's not a good thing either, right? Mm-hmm. So you encounter this sorrow and, and the sorrow makes you either, you know, stop your, stop your, 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 your ascension, as it were, toward the truth, toward God, toward reality, or it <clears throat> makes you push through. And I think if you continue on through, part of what happens is <clears throat> because it's a circular road, you actually turn away from God, and I, and I think that I think that having a rebellion against God, asking questions, you know, doubting, I think those those are all very important developmental moments in our in our in our life. And but if we 
we do turn, you know, and we are doing that turning for the right reasons, then what happens is we realize that we've aligned ourselves now with God because, you know, God is not this, you know, you know, this this ticket to happiness that we're pursuing. It's it's a way of seeing reality. And so we come back and, and we have our own condescension. We become mediators between God and those who need help. And when we come back. And I think that's yeah, that's the the, the wow. important point, you know. That's really yeah. fascinating. I I didn't quite even capture that as we read the book that that turning that turning away from you know turning away from God is actually ends up being in alignment Absolutely. with God. Right. That is that is so fascinating. Absolutely. One of the way you phrase it, or one of the ways you phrase it in the book is, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, turning away from the truth has to happen if we're going to become truly caring as the as the gods are. And you say that there's this, <clears throat> and another another way you say it is that we move from justice as truth to compassion as truth. Right, right. And I'd love for you to, um, I'd love to talk, uh, to hear your thoughts on, on compassion specifically, right. because that's a word that's, uh, that's repeated quite a, quite a few times in the book, but I also just a literary question again, throughout the book where I think in standard Latter-day Saint, uh, writing, we would use the word God, you use the gods right. with no capital, with no capital G. Could you explain that choice too? That was a very <laughs> tough editing. To yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, okay. Let me lay the cards. I'm going to lay the cards. <laughs> yeah, please do. That's what we're here for. Okay. Yes. Look. <laughs> well, turn off the mics. <laughs> so Joseph Smith, when he went to the Grove, he asked a modern question. Right, mm -hmm. all these different choices. Which is the truth? That's a modern choice, modern question. But his answer: two people show up, right, and talk to him, and they know him personally. That's not a modern answer, mm -hmm. right? Right. Depending on how you look at it, it's a a pre-modern answer or it's a post-modern answer. Right. But it's not. It's not a modern answer. Because what makes, you know, what makes our faith really, I think, dynamic and interesting, and, and I would say true, is this idea that we, we have what the Buddhists call Buddha nature. We have this ability to progress, to learn. Even God has the real ability to learn. And, and what we do affects him. He's the God who weeps, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah, thus the plural, you know. But there's a time when the concept of God is also important. So that when we're talking about God as a concept, which we do, I think, a little bit too much, mm -hmm. I use the capital okay. uh, G. In but, the singular. Yeah. But, yeah, so, yeah. The point, though, is that we become, you know, we become bodhisattva. We become like God because we are brave enough to have our questions, you know, and and compassionate enough to learn to feel the sorrow and remain in sorrow rather than shrink back. You know, if we shrink back from sorrow, you know, we and we spend our whole life in the world of justice, it's a killer, you mm -hmm. know. We become bitter, we become critical and so on. Justice, I, I tell my students, justice is like food, right? Without it, you die, but too much will kill you, mm -hmm. right? If you have too much justice, then 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 we're 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 not going anywhere because the the whole purpose of the end of the world uh narrative is to teach us both and every time 
the end of the world is taught, notice that it's always not just justice, but it's always compassion with justice. Mm -hmm. Noah jumps off his boat. You know, he lands in the mud. He doesn't say, we did it. We made it. He says, what's going on here? Tell me you're never going to do that again. Yeah. I'd never, ever thought about that. Yeah. (laughs) So he makes God promise and God puts the rainbow in the sky as a promise Mm -hmm. to Noah because God is, it's not like Noah is smarter than God. God is smarter than Noah because God put Noah in the position of having to question God. Right? And that's where he learns how, who he really is. Yeah. And this part was maybe my favorite part of the book. This, this whole idea that, that questions and doubt leave, lead to salvation because it's, that's really something that I think right now, culturally in in the church where there's a lot of tension around doubts and, and, and you say that in Buddhism that, um, that you say that Buddhists doubt infinitely um, deeper and yeah. more thoroughly or something like that. And, right. and I just wanted you to talk more about that. Like what you're saying, lean into doubt for salvation. And, and I just, I feel like there are a lot of people who feel, who will feel threatened or resistant to that idea because yeah. it's so, it's so in our Latter-day Saint culture, it's so normal to talk about doubt, like a deficit, like you're, you're not, it's, it's the opposite of, of expressing faith. Right. And so I, this idea was delicious to me, but maybe, you know, I'm a child of, Postmodernism. I don't know. Like I, <laughs> well, you but are because I, <laughs> you grew up after nineteen seventy. Yeah, I literally, anyway, I literally. Am. So maybe that's why I love this idea. But I, but it just feels like also this could be so saving. Like if 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 doubt is like you're saying a maturity or like a a a really important piece of this cycle of that we walk with God. You know, right. maybe that maybe that's the, the okay. Real so again, let me lay it all on the table. <laughs> <laughs> so see the. The problem is that the doubt that most of us has have, mm-hmm. most of us have, that leads us to walk away from our faith is kind of a half <laughs> doubt. <laughs> Can I say that? First use of the word of the phrase <laughs> half on the, on the Faith Matters podcast. <laughs> beat that out. Go ahead and beat that out. <laughs> so this is the point made by a guy named Nishitani, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a philosopher of the Kyoto School, who said, the problem with Descartes, this Descartes is a guy who s- sits in front of the fireplace with this uh, piece of uh, wax in his hands. And as it gets mm-hmm. warm, it changes its shape. And he says, wow, this is changing its shape. Everything is changing. What is there that I can believe in if everything is changing, right? And then he finally gets to the point where, well, I can, I'm, I can doubt everything. But one thing I can't doubt is I'm here thinking. Cogito ergo sum, therefore I exist. Well, Nishitani says, you idiot. <laughs> Don't you see that even you, yourself is something you should have doubted, right? And that's what Nagarjuna and these other Mahayana philosophers do. They go, they're much more thorough in their doubt and they get all the way back to, you know, everything is doubtable. Mm-hmm. Everything can be doubted. And they use logic against logic. They use thought against thought to put people uh, in a place where they realize that, you know, they're not as clever as they think they are because if they're really, really consistent in their thinking, you end up in a place where you doubt everything, mm-hmm. right? So then what, right? What happens when you get that far? And, and that's, that's the point. 
because Nagarjuna always, you know, he was a logician getting people to doubt, always for a spiritual reason, right? And the spiritual reason is called nothingness, right? So what is there to understand is that there is this nothingness, this, this situation where nothing has intrinsic existence, you know, so there's no you mm-hmm. intrinsically because who you are depends on something else or somebody else. We can't think of apple without non-apple. Right. right. Or we can't think of going without a goer or a place to go from, a place to go to. And so if anything is conditional, what that means is that you can't say that it exists in and of itself. And and saying that I exist in and of myself, therefore, you know, I don't believe in this and that and that. And, and that's the problem, right? Mm-hmm. And if you um, go far enough, the, the spiritual uh, payback for those who doubt thoroughly mm-hmm. is that the divisions, the barriers, the categories that we use to make life make sense in, in a rational way fall, fall down mm-hmm. and we realize our connection with things. And that's what nothingness is. It's a positive okay. thing. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Think of nothingness as not nihilism, right. but as the, yeah, that's, that's where I was going to just Me too. Go yeah. It. Like what, what's the difference between like, why does it matter then if you get, seems, if you really do get down to like nothingness, but that's what you're saying. It's the, because then there's, it's like, it's, it's like the air it's in fullness. this room, right? We don't like to yeah. think about it, but we're, we're sharing this. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so in the age of, of COVID. COVID. Yeah, exactly. Um, we're, we're sharing consciousness too, right? You know, what, here I am speaking to you, and you're understanding me. You know that's because we share nothingness. We share this consciousness, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't work at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's that undoing of of separation that I think is the spirit of Elijah. That was was yeah. which, wow. which is what I'm going to talk about today. Yeah, yeah. So what are the what are the practical implications? of that of that idea where those barriers have have fallen and we realize that there is greater connection with everything around us than we ever than we ever thought what does that actually what does that actually mean in terms of how we live it means lots of stuff like it means um you're you're probably not racist you know you you probably uh let your you probably make your kids eat more than macaroni and cheese mm. <laughs> Whoops! <laughs> See, <laughs> um, it probably means that um, you're generous. You're not judgmental. You know that you have sympathy. You don't see yourself as you know. I am this person, and you see someone else as that person. You yeah. see what is common. Mm-hmm. You know. One of the implications for me, I think, could be that we compare ourselves to others yes, far less right. the, the, in the age of social media. It's right. so easy to see yourself and others and the, you know, distance between you in terms of uh, perceived wealth or perceived status or perceived happiness. Right. Um, but if there is no, if there is no self truly at the end of the day, then it seems much easier to celebrate, yeah. uh, celebrate the good in other people's lives and, and mourn with them when, you know, yes. equivalently when things aren't, aren't right. going so well. 
one of the more practical themes of the book was the was the subject of home teaching, which you've you've had many remarkable experiences with your home teaching throughout throughout the years. Right, right. Um, if it's okay, I, I know this is a sacred experience, but it was written in the book, and so I'm hoping you would talk about it here with your experience with your friend Carrie, Carrie because I think yeah. it has real implications <clears throat> for the question why church, which is a really big question for a lot of people right now. Yeah. So you know, you know, I could be crazy. <laughs> I could be. I could be crazy, but I don't think I am. And like like Joseph Smith, I think I should be honest about the experiences I have had. And one of my experiences, which is really unusual, is the uh, when one of my home teachees died, went home after church, he died playing with his kids on the carpet. Uh, <clears throat> after two weeks after the funeral, he actually visited me as I was studying. And he, he asked me a question, which was, will you take care of my family? And I, and I answered him, yes, I will. And he didn't leave. He just stayed there. And he asked me the same question. I gave him the same answer. And he just stayed there. So I think about what, what's really going on here. And I realize, okay, this is it. This is, this is, this is it. You know, if I say yes to this guy, and if I don't keep my promise, then I'm really shot. You know? So I think I think about it and it's okay, Carrie. I'll take care of your kids. I'll take care of Amy and, and the kids. And he knows that I'm serious this time and he leaves. And now I'm scared, really. Yeah. <clears throat> because if I don't if I don't do that, then what good am I, really? And I've thought about that a lot. You know, why did Carrie show up like that? He, I wasn't his best friend. You know, he was my assigned friend. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. We have this habit of you be his friend. Yeah. And you be yes. His friend. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> and I wasn't, I wasn't the righteous, you know, the most righteous guy in, in, the, in the community. You know. So that means that the only reason he came to me was because I was his home teacher. Right? That's how important that calling is, right? We think of these callings as sort of, you know, uh, an inconvenience maybe or a convenient way to get to somewhere, but they're pretty important, you know, and if we take them seriously, especially this one to minister to somebody else, if we take that seriously, then we learn a lot of things. I learned so much from the Duke family. Um, and, you know, the, it's been hard for them because they haven't had their father. But time and time again, you know, uh, this and that trial comes along. And, and uh, I've, witnessed, I've witnessed how God takes care of faithful people. I love that. I don't remember if it's in this story, but where you talk about how it feels like at face value that being assigned to be someone's friend feels very false. And, and over and over there, I mean, there was this story, but there were multiple where you really developed these amazing relationships with people that you were assigned to minister to. And, and, you know, combined with this, this constant theme of raking and as, as a metaphor for discipleship, it just seemed like this is the, 
like the perfect prescription to practice that, that, you know, you can, you can put judgment aside and the only thing you have to focus on is walking with God. Like what would God literally do in this situation? And it just, I, I think I haven't ever really like looked at ministering like that. And, and I know it can seem like a burden or it can seem disingenuous and it, in it just felt like you really flipped that on its head and made it feel like this is, this is such a beautiful way that our community puts right. this into practice. Well, you know, it, if I if I have that knowledge, it's because <clears throat> I grew up with people who were who are good to me. You know, I I can't list the numbers of blessings that I've received, including the blessing that came to my family when they ended up in Sigurd, Utah, of all places. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, I when I think about Sigurd, you know, I, I think okay, this is this is the age of racism. Were any of those people mean to you? You know, yeah. all those white people, were they ever, did they ever, you know, discount you? Did they ever exclude you? And I don't know. I, I can't really think of any examples. Mm-hmm. And and that's my, that might just be really extraordinary. But, mm-hmm. but what it means is that those Latter-day Saints in Sigurd, Utah, town of 200, Poor town, right? Gypsum mill and farmers uh, gave my family the opportunity to recover from the relocation, being sent away from their homes, being, you know, made to live in a horse stall for a while and then in a camp for a couple of years. And uh, it allowed my father to eventually say to me just before he died, my my bitter father, mm-hmm. who rarely spoke about the war, it allowed him to say to me, uh, <clears throat> Charles, I think that the hand of God brought us out of California to live here in Utah so that we would understand, you know, mm-hmm. the truth. And that truth is 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 a Christian truth, but it's also a Buddhist truth, right? And my training as uh, being, you know, Zen Sky and uh, Zen, do I have it right? Zion? Zen Sky. <laughs> <laughs> um, made, made that teaching all the more clear, you know, because yeah. it's coming from two directions at the same time and they overlap and they reinforce each other. Yeah, I really love that. There was, um, I wanted, we, I know we kind of touched on justice, but I feel like this is so. <clears throat> this is feels really important in our community right now. This um, you say that, that justice is blind in more ways than one, but, but that compassion is always an option. And, 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 and then you bring up this idea that, that purity sometimes this, this like push, this push for purity and for being exact can sometimes pull us out of life instead of into right. life. And this is like a, some, a lesson that you learn in every era of your, of your life to, to lean into life instead of out of it. And so I, I want you, I would love for you to talk about that because I think there will probably be language in the back of people's minds saying like, no, but you know, if you're lukewarm, you'll be spewed. And like, you know, you have to be pure. And like, we, it is our job to sort r- truth from, from the philosophies of men. Absolutely. And so, so would you talk about how you reconcile that? Because I, I did feel like I believed it, you know, I believed it after all of these examples in your book that sometimes that like, this is just intense, like pressure to sort what is sin and what isn't sin like sometimes that is a 
a really separating thing that, that, you know, it it shifts your focus back again to like you getting yourself to God instead of walking with God. So how do you reconcile both of those types of purity? Well, when you think about the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, so-called, Jesus takes the time to explain what kind of people are my people? What kind of people are good? What kind of people are going to heaven? Mm-hmm. To put it in those terms. And then he says a remarkable thing. He says, but I don't want you to be judging people, right? And by the way, I make the rain fall on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the good and the bad. Yeah. Right? So it totally undercuts this notion that it's all about becoming the purest in heart, right? Walter Benjamin uh, wrote a famous essay in in which he comes to a a kind of a shocking uh, equation. He says, if you take politics and you add aesthetics to it, you get fascism. (laughs) Fascism is... Um, an aestheticization aesthetization of the political, where you um, you make the pursuit of purity or beauty a political goal. Mm-hmm. And the reason why this is such a bad idea is because in mo- in the minds of most, purity means the lack of impurity. And so they're quick to note that okay. Impure means that these kind of people or those kind of people or whatever, mm-hmm. homosexuals, you know, Romanos, on and on. And so polit- the political process becomes a separation away from or an elimination of everything that is impure. And it's a frightening, terrible uh, society that that creates. Right. Right. And I think the spirit of Elijah is is just the opposite impulse. It's the inclusive impulse. It turns the hearts to our, our hearts to our parents and our parents to us. And it's not just a family tree problem. It's a, it's the family tree problem. It's the, mm. the, the idea that we belong to the same family when you think about it. You go push back far enough, right? And so our search for, um, our search for separation through purity and perfection shouldn't be confused with the kind of purity and perfection that comes from being totally connected with everything and totally alive yeah. in, in, in the priesthood and in what God's power might be for us, right? That reminds me of one thing that you say about studying scripture. You, you speak with someone, I think it's while you're in Japan, and you yeah. say, why don't you Buddhists teach your people to study doctrine right. the way we do. And, and their answer, I was like, well, yeah, why? I don't know. And, and it was so interesting. Their answer was because it would confuse them. And you kind of have this epiphany that more study doesn't necessarily mean more clarity or that's understanding. Right. Right. So, you know, I, I feel like that that's probably going to like, people are going to feel something about that because that's how we worship. You know, we read, we read our scriptures. <laughs> and so, so how else do you practice? How do you draw yourself to God in, you know, a daily way if it's not necessarily through logical, modern, getting a testimony? It's like, raking. It's yeah. like, you know, <clears throat> so I'm on my second marriage. And I think one of the reasons why I'm not still on my first is because I didn't attend to these things that I should have, you know. That's hmm. a pretty blunt way hmm. to put it. But 
um, praying every day, you know, having having a home evening with your family, right? Mm-hmm. Um, going to the temple when you can, going to church on Sundays, taking the sacrament, serving when you can. Those, you know, they, they kind of wear us out. Maybe they bore us a little bit, but those are the those are the things that really make a difference over time. Yeah, it takes it the takes practice. Some time. You know? Yeah, yeah. I um I wanted to ask about what for me was it was a brief portion of the book, but maybe one of the more difficult portions, and especially especially potentially in light of you may have heard about Elder Holland's speech at BYU that he gave um ten days ago or so. Oh no. Um, it was it was one where he focused a lot on what he referred to as the same sex challenge mm-hmm. and um the reaction and he expressed a lot of he expressed a lot of love uh but i i know that the reaction from many people in the lgbtq community was that they feel less welcome uh than ever in oh, is that right? in this church oh. yeah and you you talk in in your book about a very difficult assignment that you had it sounded like a member maybe as a member of a bishopric right to excommunicate <clears throat> two men who were gay and you, and you say well, that it wasn't excommunication oh excuse me they hold just, a disciplinary council oh disfellowship oh, disfellowship. Okay. yeah excuse me um and they were you encouraged them to to stay it sounds like and sort of keep participating but they didn't really want to and you say they didn't feel welcome and and who can blame them right and then you don't give any concrete answers really to like how to solve this but you bring up the parable in the book of mormon in in jacob 5 where the the servant is pleading with the lord of the vineyard mm-hmm. uh for more mercy right and I, I found that I found that fascinating, you know, potentially as it as it applies to this social issue. Like, is there more pleading that that we should be doing yeah. as the servants in the vineyard? Okay, so so if you think about Abraham, right? So Abraham is this this man who, when God says to him, "Go take your son and sacrifice him," he obediently, you know, takes the journey to Moriah. Um, now, if you ask me. Charles, I want you to sacrifice your boy. I'm not, I don't think I have to, I don't have to spend much time on that one. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. That's yeah. not me. And if, and if that has to be me, I'm, I just don't belong in this, in this, in this room, right? However, right, there's another Abraham. And that other Abraham is the guy who, you know, at the dinner party, once they've learned that, in fact, Sarah is finally going to get pregnant. And the next thing on the list, tell Abraham is going to have a baby, go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, wait, do you, do you really want to do that? Right? And he, he, he launches this judge justice argument. Mm-hmm. If there are righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, and you destroy those cities, everybody, then you've that's injustice. Will you do that? And God says, no, I won't do that. He says, you find 50 people, will you do that? Will you save it? And he says, sure. And he goes down to 40. God says, sure. Goes down to 30. God says, okay, sure. He gets them all the way down to 10, I think, right? So the question is, why is, why is Abraham making this very strenuous argument against God against the will of God, right? Mm-hmm. That's the other part of Abraham, right? And I think what's happening there is that 
God is putting us in this situation as he's doing this for many people right now, I think, between these these ideas that, okay, these people should be punished because of X, Y, and Z. So how does that make you feel, right? If it makes you feel like, good, right? Get glad to be rid of those people anyway. That's not where we're supposed to be. I think what we're supposed to be is making the argument in love to embrace those people, right? Now, with regard to the question of, of does do homosexuals deserve punishment? I don't, I don't, I certainly don't think so. So we won't probably have time to get to this list that I prepared for you, but one of the things <clears throat> that I thought about last night uh, with regard to racism, and it could be, you know, the same problem with, mm-hmm. with uh, homosexuality and attitudes about it, is that one of my recommendations for people who want to be not racist is to join, to avoid joining social groups, political groups that are filled with people just like you, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because that just makes the problem worse because it increases the separation. Yeah. Um, but the question is, is one of those groups the church, right? So your perception is that the, the church is full of people who are like this, and I should be like them, and, and because I'm not, I don't feel at home. But I think that's a misunderstanding. I think that, I think that the, the church group is an unusual one because it's a group of people who are unlike each other. Hmm. Essentially, it's an essentially diverse community of people unlike each other who are trying to kind of work it out. So belonging to that group is not um, a way to shrink from the world, to pull away from it, but is a way to engage it. The problem is I think we misunderstand it. And again, I think it's a, a modern misunderstanding. You know, we think of the church as, you know, we're more American than everybody. We're healthier than everybody. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we're straighter than everybody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's not it. Yes. Yeah. And I actually, I actually totally agree with that. And that's sort of the argument that Eugene England makes in his famous essay, the, the church, uh, the church is as true as the gospel, yes, right? right? That yeah. the, the sort of these, even within our limited geographic wards, we're forced to interact with people that are very, very different than us. That may look similar in some ways demographically, but, um, that could be so different from us theologically or in their in their family situations or in their sexuality or whatever it is even if it's even if that's closeted or or whatever that there is a lot of diversity that we wouldn't experience if we naturally gravitate if we just let ourselves naturally gravitate towards people that are easy to be with because people that are easy to be with often are just like us yeah yeah and the thing is without without a lot of raking we would never know it yes People don't trust you unless you're willing to rake for them, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And that feels like such a um, like a productive thing that you can do now. Like when you you know if you're feeling really conflicted and you're, or you're in the middle of doubt, you know, wherever you are on that cycle that you illustrate, it feels like raking can always be the thing you do this afternoon. <laughs> and and that and and wherever you are, that will be productive, right. and and will lead to to growth. So I, I really love that because it just distills it into something so simple. Like it's just, it's not complicated. Like it, it, wherever you are in the cycle, you can choose to walk with God and, and just rake, like just, you know, keep on, keep on 
keeping on. So I, I, I feel like if I had to sum up the book, like that's really what I took from it. And, and it, it's hope giving, you know, it feels like oh, there's I'm something glad. for everybody to do right <laughs> yeah. now and it will be productive. On, on that point, I think, and I know we've just got a minute or two left, but um, it, wa- it was a very hopeful book. And near the end, you say that the fabric of modern society is being shredded as we speak, um, which is doesn't sound very hopeful. But you actually follow that up with... Uh, you, you say that you believe in the possible blessings of this raging storm. And I think so many people, almost everyone that's paying attention is feeling a raging storm. That there, this, it does feel like the fabric of society is being shredded in, in many ways um, over so many different issues. Could you explain as we close why you, why you feel hopeful and, and optimistic? Why I feel hopeful. <clears throat> well, I... I have to say that um, I've, I've, I've felt the love of God and and I've certainly felt a lot of things too. <laughs> <laughs> but it's that feeling that God loves us and that he loves everybody, not just me. That is my kind of go-to idea. You know, it's it's... It's it's the, the ground of who I am and what I think and what I feel because if if that is true, if God loves everybody, then and and I'm supposed to be like God and loving everybody, then then I do have I do have hope, you know. Yeah. We are um we're faced with this right now, you know, Antifa versus Proud Boys kind of situation. And, yeah. And it's it's easy, honestly, to think of people, you know. So I, you know, to 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 you know let let you know, I I did get vaccinated, and I and I have a hard time understanding people who didn't get vaccinated. But I think that if you took the time, if I took the time to be with people who aren't vaccinated, I would probably understand that somehow. Yeah, but the problem is that we, you know, we don't take the time. We just. <sighs> We just separate out, and we let our minds, rather than our raking, uh, rule the day, and we don't get close to people enough to hear their real reasons, their real anxieties, their real fears, their real histories. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, the past that we all drag around with us. Yeah, you know, we we all need to we all need to be that load needs to be lifted from us. You know. Yeah. yeah. I just to put a couple of concepts from the book together, I think a lot of us have felt the love of God. We felt that we are loved by God. It's less clear, you know, I guess we we can't feel for other people and know that they've also felt that. But like if you take this concept of of nothingness to its logical extent, you say, "Okay, I know that God loves me or I at least believe that God loves me. I've I've felt that." And then the self disappears and the barriers disappear, then that love of God naturally extends to everyone to everyone around us. Right. Does that sound sound like what exactly? Yeah, yeah. Love that. Thank you so much. We this is a special book. We really have enjoyed enjoyed it so much. I'm I'm glad. glad. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Charles. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Charles Inouye. You can find Zion Earth, Zen Sky on Amazon, and we hope that you find some time to read it. 
As always, if Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. We read every review and it helps us so much to get the word out about Faith Matters, so we really appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening, and as always, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.